The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. to introduce Jeremy Van Sant as, as our speaker tonight. He's a graduate of Lancaster Bible College. I have only known him approximately a year, I guess, that I first really sat down and got acquainted with him and his wife, Rachel, who are now members of our church. Jeremy has served two different uh, independent churches, once, I believe, as an assistant pastor and then as a pastor up in western New York, not far from where I come from. He's now not in the ministry, but uh, serving in secular employment and saying, I think the right question is, what's next, God? Is that a good way to put it? We are glad to give Jeremy an opportunity to be in our pulpit and open the word for us tonight. Thanks to Dr. Rogers. Thanks to the pastors on staff here for this opportunity. Know that uh, I know that the opportunities are spread abroad, so to open up an opportunity like this one tonight for myself It is not one that I would overlook, so thank you so much, Dr. Rogers. Let's go to the Word tonight. We're reading out of Psalm 46, so if you'll turn there with me. We're focusing on the 10th verse, really, of this psalm, but we'll read the whole psalm for the sake of the context. I think it helps us in getting a better grasp and understanding on this familiar verse. This is God's Holy Word. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us, the God of Jacob is our fortress. Come behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still. And know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Father, we give you praise tonight for this, your holy and inspired word. And we would simply ask that you might give us the grace so as to be benefited and encouraged and helped by the truth in which it contains. We commit this study of it to you. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Have you ever thought that you knew all there was to know about something, but then you later realize, once you're into it, that you really knew nothing about it whatsoever? 
Maybe you thought you knew all that there was to know about parenting. You had read the books, you had gotten the advice, but then you actually became a parent. Or maybe it was an occupation that you were so excited about uh, getting into and you, and you did this, the hard work of studying and, and preparing and uh, you land that job in that position and then all of a sudden you're, you're in it and it's so much more than you thought it was. Maybe even in some cases more than what you had bargained for. We all know the oft-quoted 10th verse of Psalm 46, don't we? Be still and know that I am God. We have it memorized. It hangs on our walls. We might even have it as the background on our computers or our smartphones. It brings us comfort, doesn't it? Be still and know that God is God. Turn off the noise and focus on God. It sounds so spiritual, doesn't it? But how many Christians, I wonder, have actually experienced this? Do you realize how incredibly rare it is for anyone to be still for anyone or anything? I've done my fair share of visitations in the hospital over the years with different folks for different reasons. They are there in the bed, or they're sitting in the chair, and they're fidgeting. They're wondering what? When can I go? When can I get up? When can I leave? That's the first question that comes to our minds when we're in those sorts of situations. And so as I thought about this passage and I thought about this verse, I thought, how much do we really actually grasp and understand this, this verse and the truth that it contains. No one is still in our world. No one is quiet. I'm afraid the reality is, is that we know very little of this well-known verse, even though we are very familiar with it. But I believe that this verse really holds a secret to the Christian life. Now, as we begin, consider the greater context of the psalm. That's why we read the whole thing there together. What has been described in the first nine verses is really both epic and, frankly, frightening as I look at it. The psalmist initially states on behalf of God's people that God is our refuge, God is our strength, a very present help in trouble. And this isn't a quaint saying for the psalmist. It's actually foundational, even in the midst of much trouble. Verses 2 through 3 poetically capture a time of great distress and great disorder. He pictures the very earth giving way, mountains being undercut and thrown into the ocean. The most certain and immovable objects in our world are being tossed around like small and insignificant toys. Have you ever felt like the most immovable objects in your personal life have been uprooted and shaken up and tossed about? It's unnerving. It's disconcerting. It's scary. This is the reason that I think so many Christians have appreciated Psalm 46 over the years. It was supposedly one of Luther's favorites and the inspiration for his A Mighty Fortress is Our God. God is his people's refuge place precisely in the times of utter chaos. But think with me very honestly as we look at verse 10. 
Think about those moments of uncertainty and volatility when life is literally upside down. And then think about the counterintuitive nature of the call in verse 10. Be still? Excuse me? Are you serious? Uh, Be still now? If there was ever a time to not be still, this is surely that time, God. Something must be done. A solution must be found. A way of escape must be determined. Stillness is fine for that cabin in the woods by the lakeside for vacation, but, but stillness don't, won't do for a, for a moment like this moment in the face of such trouble and, and uncertainty. Isn't this how we are when life is literally falling apart all around us? Don't we really resemble the disciples who probably did everything in their power to rectify their situation prior to waking up Jesus while they were in the midst of that storm in the boat together? We aren't still. We're too busy bailing out the water of our proverbial boat. So verse 10 is not as straightforward as we may have thought. What we have is actually an incredibly difficult call. Why is that? Well, there's a difficulty in stillness because we are born into a state of restlessness, aren't we? This is why the initial call to the sinner to come to the Savior to find rest from all of their labors is so powerful. But we would fool ourselves if we thought that we would never struggle with restlessness again. We're naturally bent to look to ourselves for salvation. We will provide for ourselves. We are self-sufficient, able to overcome any obstacles. And we might get away with those kinds of thoughts for a while. God's patient with us. But then that moment will confront us where we are incapable of fixing whatever it is that has befallen us. I think that's the situation here in Psalm 46. Some commentators have suggested that this psalm was written in response to the great trouble of an Assyrian army camped outside a depleted and starving Jerusalem during Hezekiah's reign. The people of Israel were out of options at the end of their collective rope. It's, you know, it's, it's all over here. What are we going to do? Hezekiah appealed to Isaiah to implore the Lord to act. Listen to God's answer. This is 2 Chronicles 20. He says, you will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid, do not be afraid and do not be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, and the Lord will be with you. This was really reminiscent of a previous time in Israel's history when they stood on the bank of the Red Sea with an Egyptian army in hot pursuit. Again, another dead-end type of situation. And there Moses said to the people, Exodus 14, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. But that doesn't come naturally, does it? We feel the need to act, or to strategize at the very least. But do you know what the problem with that is? God is set aside in our largely atheistic strivings. We're operating independently of him, or at best, looking for him to merely rubber stamp our efforts. 
stealing away into God as refuge and waiting for him to act isn't easy. Everything in us repels against the idea, but God has great purposes in this stillness. So let's think about the importance of this call to be still. You see, there's a real logic to the structure of the psalm. Verse 10 is actually the most appropriate application in light of this psalm's greater truth. God is described with incredible language within the psalm. The peoples of the earth rage against God's holy people. They seek to bring them to destruction, but God speaks. And the psalmist pictures the earth melting. Then the psalmist tells his audience to behold God's past acts and works. How he's fought on behalf of his people. He's worked salvation time after time after time. He has stood in the way of the oppressor. He has broken the bow. He's shattered the spear. His people have persevered, never to be finally or fully swallowed up. He's been their strong tower. He's defeated their many foes. So how should they respond in light of such a recollection? What's really the logical response? Isn't it quietness and stillness before this great, awesome, all-powerful God? It is a unique repose and trust in the God of salvation. Hear that well tonight. We are not a people, a man, a woman, a child of salvation. No, there's only one being of salvation, and that's God, God alone. And yet, because of the fall, we're inclined to what? We're inclined to worship ourselves. We're inclined to glorify ourselves. We're inclined to put our own plans, our own desires, our own acts above him. When we live in this way, it runs counter to God's original design, and that's a problem. When we try to figure it out, when we try to come up with a solution, and when we leave God out of it, that's not the way that God intended us to live and to be. And you know, this is not completely removed when we're converted either. I'm sorry to burst your bubble. We continue to battle at this foundational point. So what does overwhelming trial accomplish? Well, it brings us to an incredibly humbling point. And it's simply this. The admittance that we are not God. We don't have the answers. We can't solve the problem. We can't avoid this pain. We can't work this out. We are insufficient, actually, to meet this need. But you know what? That's really good. Because we were never really able to work anything out on our own. We were created to live with God in this world, not independently of him, but actually with him. Part of the purpose in this call to stillness is to reestablish roles, I think. We consistently think of ourselves, leaving little time to think of God, and so what? We increase, and our circumstances, because we're, we're, we're mulling on them, we're, we're working them out, we're trying to figure it out, and they grow, and they abound, and, and, and as they grow, what happens? Well, our 
amount of think, thought space for God decreases. The call to contemplative stillness reverses that. But how so? Think with me about the goal of stillness. Notice that the call here is not simply to inactivity. I think that Christians tend to think that this verse is simply about slowing down from their busyness. Now, that might need to happen for the sake of this process. But inactivity or quiet is not the end goal. What does the text actually say? Be still and know something, right? Be still and know that I am God. Yes, be, be quiet, be still, turn down the noise, shut out the world, but in that stillness, set your mind on God. That's what this call is after. What is the ultimate purpose for man and woman after all? Isn't it to, to know God? Is there anything higher or more important than knowing God? Is there a study that is more deserving? Is there a pursuit that is more rewarding? Is there a subject which is more intriguing? We were made to know God and to know God in his unfathomable depths. The remarkable nature to this text is that even here, when life seemingly makes no sense at all, God is calling us to know him more. And in the end, God uses some of the worst moments that we could conceive of to call us into a greater and fuller understanding of himself. Think about Job as an illustration of this. What was God really doing there? If it's been a while, you only really need to read the first couple of chapters to get a feel and taste of how awful life had quickly become for Job. All of these horrific happenings, loss of children, loss of all possessions, loss of health, maybe even the potential of the loss of his wife, at least relationally speaking. It's so bad that Job even laments his own birthday. It's all so very raw and awful, if we're to be honest. What could God be after? As you're reading the beginning of it, God is there. His providential hand is ordering these events, and, and, and we're left saying, but why? And, and, and for what reason, God? Seems like almost a, a sick game of uh, seeing whether or not Job can make it. But you know what? Job, not God, gives us a glimpse into what God was probably after. The last chapter of Job Job says, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. You see, God used these tragedies as a vehicle to reveal himself more fully to Job. 
There's a great temptation to be caught up with the massive noise emanating from our trial, and it is massive. Make no mistake about that. But realize that God is speaking even here. He's revealing himself in a new way to us. But are we too worked up to see and to hear? That's the question that must be asked in response to all of this. Are we so focused on getting beyond whatever the hardship is that we miss God in the midst of this moment? There are a few things harder, I'll admit, for the Christian to do that, to see God, to hear God when life is falling apart around us. But there are a few things that are as enriching as finding God in the midst of our trials. Have you ever looked on a painting or a drawing that is, has hidden images drawn into it? They say, oh, you can't see whatever it is. You had only looked at it very quickly and you had moved on and say, no, I don't see anything in there. You look back, you look at it quickly. No, I don't see anything. No. They tell you, you have to slow down, look carefully, slowly, examine the picture, right? That's hard for us. But as you do what you see, that whatever has, that has been hidden, maybe there are multiple images in there. I think that to a certain degree, that's what's happening within our lives. It's great. It seems so muddled. It's, it's great chaos. It seems so um, just out of control. No point or purpose to it. But if we're to be still and to look, I believe that we might just see God in the midst of our hardships, trials, difficulties. But how does all this work in the midst of real and devastating trouble, hardship, and trial as we think about the substance here of stillness? How does, how does knowing God affect the moments of desolation in my life? I mean, yeah, okay, get, I get it. You know, God is, you know, yeah, he exists. He's there. Yes, he's, he sent Jesus. Okay, well, I mean, what, what else is there? I mean, yeah, let's, let's move on. No, there's, there's so much more here in that in that pregnant statement to be still and know. I know that it seems like such consideration should be left to the, those that have the time, the pastors, right, the theologians, the, philo- the, philoso- the, the philosophers. Yeah, they have the time. They can think about it. But, but, what, but what about me? When life takes such a turn that I can't even begin to understand it, what happens when I have no answers, when I have no explanations, when death has touched me in a way that I never thought that I could be touched, when disease has come on, on me in a way that I could have never envisioned, when, when I've lost a job that I had been counting on, what, what am I supposed to do in, in, in that time in relation to thinking about God? Well, there's really two options when those things are falling upon us. One is to retreat inwardly, and that's default. That's natural. One is to cast ourselves onto God. But if we choose the latter of those two options, that includes right thinking about God. So why does God call on his trembling people to meditate on him? What effect does that produce God is saying to his people, be still and and know me. Know that he's good. 
He'll always act for your spiritual best. Know that he's faithful. He will always keep his promises. Know that he's all-powerful. He will never be conquered by another. Know that he's just. He will never allow sin and injustice to ultimately be overlooked. Know that he's wise. He is always accomplishing his will. Know that he's sovereign because he's always in control. Know that he's jealous and that he will always keep you Christian as the apple of his eye. Know that he's loving and that he'll never remove his steadfast love from you. Know that he's unchanging. He'll remain eternally the same. His past acts evidence how he will always act on behalf of his people. And know that he's glorious. He will be exalted in all the earth. And that final piece provides further encouragement because the Christian's ultimate perseverance is tied to the exaltation and the glory of God. Know that if he is to be glorified, the Christian must endure. So don't merely assent to these truths by the empty recitation of a catechism. Know them as soul-reviving and soul-encouraging truths. Resolve to hold fast to who he is because it's in the midst of hardship and trouble that the enemy comes to lie to you about who God really is. The enemy will say that he's the opposite of all those things that I've already mentioned. He'll say that God isn't good. Just look at this mess. He'll say God is not all-powerful. Just think about what he could have prevented. He'll say God is not wise. Just think about the different scenarios that he could have brought about. He's not loving. How could he allow this to happen? Psalm 46.10 is not a call for some needed R&R. It provides the spiritual medicine needed when your life is upside down and makes no sense at all. If we aren't careful to be still, to reflect on who God really is and how he has acted in the past, then life will begin to unravel. My grandmother was a lifelong New York Yankees fan, and I know that means that's the last time I'll be invited to uh, speak here at the Westminster pulpit. But nonetheless, that was the case. And for a number of years, uh, there was this great pitcher that would close games. So his job was to come in in the ninth inning in the most stressful, pressurized sorts of situations and win the game, essentially, get those final three outs. And my grandmother, for whatever reason... Though he was repeatedly great, stacking up statistics over and over and over again, just was always just full of fear, oh, this is it, we're going to lose. I was confident, and I said, hey, he's coming in, it's over. You see, what I allowed to happen was I allowed the past acts of, yes, he was just a man, and yes, he most certainly uh, erred at times. But I allowed those past acts to influence the way that I thought about the outcome. Whereas my grandmother, unfortunately, lived in fear of the ninth inning because she didn't allow the man's past actions to affect her confidence. That's, again, I think a little bit of what, a little picture of what the psalm is after. To call us to think about what God has done in the past, who he is, and to allow that to affect confidence in today, though we might not be able to begin to explain it or to understand it, 
we can trust him. Now, I recognize that it may seem like we don't have time to be still and to know God. But this exercise will revitalize the weary and the anxious heart. Part of what makes God so incredibly gracious and kind is that he oftentimes ordains the events in our life to place us in a time of quiet and stillness. John Piper said, don't waste your cancer, along with other don't waste phrases, but let me borrow from that thought and encourage you to not waste your stillness. God is in the midst of it. Be still and seek him out. Grow in your knowledge of him. He's near. He's working in a personal way for your and for my spiritual development As we close tonight, think about the man mentioned in this psalm. One man. Who is he? The God of who? Jacob. His life was all sorts of crazy as he hightailed it out of his father-in-law's camp. He had dysfunction in his home with two rivaling wives, which was undoubtedly seen and felt by his kids. There were kids from four different women trying to live with one another in his home. Jacob had been repeatedly cheated and mistreated by his father-in-law. He simply couldn't take it any longer. Jacob thought he knew that what he, thought he knew what he needed. He just needed to get out. He needed to leave. He needed to run. But God knew that he needed something else. And so God ordained that, this, that his estranged brother Esau would come up to meet Jacob on his escape route. That really put Jacob over the top. He was out of options and schemes, and mountains, quite literally, were falling into the heart of the sea for Jacob. He sent his entourage ahead in two camps as a final ditch effort to save lives, and then Jacob was what? All alone. You know what happened next. God came. And met Jacob. And he did so to bring quiet and stillness to Jacob's anxiety ridden heart. Do you find yourself in a similar moment tonight? Don't criticize this time trying to bring it to a shortened end. Be aware God is in the midst of the stillness. And the point of it just might be to take you to that place of calm repose which looks at the chaos and destruction cascading all around, but confidently says, God is my refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, I will not fear. That is when we truly live as Christians. May God give us the grace and the stillness to grow into such confidence. Father, oh, to help us in this. We feel so much like the disciples who said to the Lord Jesus, Lord, increase our faith. And so we would ask that in the stillness of this time that we might think very carefully about what you might be doing in it. We'd ask that, Lord, you would make us more and more likened to your Son, who went forth with confidence, knowing you to be his ultimate refuge place. And so we ask that as we go, you might make us more like him. And we pray it in his name. Amen.